we now have the uh, Bible reading, and I think it's uh, on the overhead behind me. Um, but if you'd like to read in the Bible, it's um, John chapter 4, verses 1 to 29. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that, that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, would you have asked him and he would have given you living water? Sorry, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it in himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living, welling water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, I believe, uh, believe me, in a time, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Jesus, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and she said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And as Jeff comes, we uh, 
Thank you for your comments on this theme. And thank you, John, for your, your reading. And Catherine, for uh, inviting us to worship this morning. This is uh, one of my dearest passages, uh, dear to my heart anyway. It's very hard to do justice to this passage, especially when you drop your notes. Maybe that was a sign. <laughs> um, but uh, we're looking in this period, uh, as we work through John, at those passages which, uh, where Jesus um, is seen up close and people get a glimpse of him one-on-one. So we're not necessarily looking at his, his great miracles or his great um, sermons, which John has uh, preserved for us, many of those. Uh, he, uh, we're looking at uh, Jesus in those interactions where you can get up close and check him out and see how he responds. And this is one of these great passages. And uh, so I pray that uh, the Lord who appears here will appear here for you this morning. So we see this picture that Jesus begins moving into Samaria. He's been down south in, in uh, like the eastern suburbs of, of Jerusalem and Judea. And now he starts to head north. And it's partly because, as we read, uh, it was uh, uh, that he really didn't want to cramp the style of John the Baptist. Even though now he has eclipsed John and he's baptising more people than John, uh, he saw no point in starting a popularity contest. And it says in verse 4 that he had to go through Samaria. Now, he had to in one sense... Samaria is that middle section on the map between Judea in the south and Galilee, where he's heading to, where he comes from, the north. But you don't have to necessarily go through Samaria to get to Galilee. In fact, the devout, uh, conspicuous and sensitive Jew would cross the river down south, lest they set foot on that God-forsaken place of Samaria, which would contaminate them. And that's the last thing they wanted, was to be contaminated by, by any sort of discourse with Samaritans. And that's the context that we're reading here. We'll fill you in a bit, a bit about that as we go further. And so he comes to this Samaritan city, and they're on foot, he and the boys, and uh, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus is plum tuckered out. It is hot. They've walked a long way. He's probably dehydrated. It's about noon. It's not a great time for travelling in that sort of country. And there Jesus is, and the disciples, we read in verse 7, have gone, or verse 8, have gone off to buy food, get some takeaway. And Jesus is sitting by a well, and in the distance, a figure comes towards him in the shimmering heat. And he sees her, and she sees him. And it's one of those awkward moments. And she is carrying a water jar. Her daily ration of water would go into that jar, probably strapped with a rope woven around her head. And she's moving towards him. It's pretty obvious what she's doing, where she's heading. But both of them are out of place. This is an awkward moment, not just in the sense that uh, we have when we're 
early to an airport and we're sitting in the lounge and we're the only person and number two rolls up and should you get eye contact, should you not? That's an uncomfortable moment, but this is particularly uncomfortable. But Jesus bursts through this period, this difficult moment, and he breaks the ice in verse 7. He says to her straight away, give me a drink. And I think it's really, he really did want a drink, but he wants to start the conversation with this woman. He had to go to Samaria. This was on his agenda. And he asks for a drink to begin this discourse. And uh, the woman, she says, and I, I, I have to avoid, my wife would warn me, I have to avoid uh, sort of putting on uh, accents here and but I envisage the sound of someone who is uh, sort of a cross or a hybrid between Eliza Doolittle and Madonna, <laughs> if you can sort of meld them to do get. I think you end up with Billy Connolly, but, it's, um, <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, that's the trouble. I'm not good at accents, but you've got to read this with the bounce of a colloquial conversation. Jesus is a country boy. He's from the sticks. This woman is, she's a toughie and you've got to hear what is being said. It comes out all ecclesial and Anglican when you read it in scripture. But you've got to hear what is happening here. This is a, a pretty powerful dialogue that happens and I would like you to stick with it if you wouldn't mind. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me? That's a bit rich, isn't it? A Samaritan woman. Now, there are two social blunders happening here she's saying on the one hand everyone knows you Jews are uptight about holiness and kosher etc and to drink from someone's container who is not kosher like me is to contaminate yourself so she's basically saying to Jesus I've got it <laughs> when in Rome do as the Romans do when in Judea all that kosher stuff matters but right now when you're thirsty it's all out the window right <laughs> she's jibing Jesus and uh, she she's picked up on this and the other part is that she's a woman and in the ancient east individual males would dishonor a woman it is like literally raping a woman to speak privately to them. That's just a no-no. It's taboo. I remember years ago in Adelaide uh, having a barbecue at a friend's place and she was in ref into refugee work and, and she'd invited around uh, my family to meet this uh, young family out of Kosovo and they had applied for refugee status. And it got to that time where we thought we'd better get the barbecue going and... Um, and uh, my wife and daughters uh, got up and went inside with, with this uh, re uh, social worker to get all the accoutrements for the, the barbecue. And I was left uh, sitting at the barbecue with this Kosovo young mother. And uh, guess what happened? I thought, you know, to be polite, I should break the ice. And I, I looked at her and I smiled. Guess what she did? She got up and she ran around the house to the other side. Because she comes from this culture. I don't. And that was, for her, an affront. I had dishonoured her. In that culture, 
the men speak to the men. If you want to know about the wife, you ask the husband and you direct your questions through them. But Jesus, he's breaking all rules of social discourse here. But she's not embarrassed. She can handle herself. She's been around. And she knows the game and she sees through yet another fake, she thinks. Jesus answered her, if only you realised the irony of this situation. If only you knew the gift of God that is sitting right here in front of you. It's you who would have been asking me for a drink. I would have given you living water, which is a pun, which means fresh, running, and in Jesus' sense, he means life-touched, water touched by life, by the life giver. And the woman, she just hears this and skates straight over it as uh, just a mundane phrase and she said, oh, we've got tickets on ourselves, have we? <laughs> you bit special. I, I don't see a bucket. <laughs> and yet you're going to give me a drink? Well, that is choice. <laughs> Isn't that precious? This deep well, no bucket. You're, you're better than Jacob, are we? Now, he, he, he is able to draw water for enough for him and his flocks and herds, but you're going to give me a drink. I like to see that. And uh, Jesus has another go at it, and he says, um, look, everyone who drinks this water, and he's getting a bit frustrated, are going to, is going to be thirsty again. But those who, to use the metaphor drinking those who drink the sort of water I give, they'll never be thirsty. The sort of water I give will be like a, a stream that gushes up within you and quenches all your desires and all your needs. You never feel empty ever again. And this woman doesn't live on the plane of metaphor and poetry. This is a romantic notion to her. And she just says, oh boy, if only I had one of those taps in my house. <laughs> I wouldn't have to come out of this godforsaken place to lug water day by day. And she is in this godforsaken place because she thinks she's a godforsaken woman. Wrong time of day. None of the other women are there. And this is the reason why. So we've had this little rendezvous and Jesus has given a riddle and it hasn't worked. And Jesus thinks, let's go back to square one. He says, <clears throat> I shouldn't be talking to you. Let, let's speak to your hubby. Bring hubby out. I'd love to meet your man. And uh, with a, uh, a quick display of being coy, she says, oh, I, I have no husband. Jesus says, right you are. <laughs> In fact, let me tell you. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with right this minute, he's someone else's husband. You spoke the truth there, love. And she sees this as a different sort of person. And she goes, oh, <laughs> I perceive we have a prophet here. Ah, right you are. And she thinks Jesus is just out to rub her nose in it. She thinks Jesus is just out to score spiritual points over a Samaritan. He's an educated man. She's not. She knows the game. She's been here before. And uh, so she says, I can see where this is going. Look, forget the religious talk. Forget the theology lesson. 
We Samaritans, we've got our sacred sites, we've got our mountain. You Jews, you've got your mountain. We could talk till we're blue in the face. Let's just settle from a little bit of polite ecumenism here and agree to disagree. That's what she's saying. And she says, just don't bother. And Jesus says to her in verse 21, and it's an affront again, but he's got his attention and he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The whole notion of location is about to be rendered redundant in terms of what is a sacred site, where you can meet God. You worship that which you do not know. Jesus is no polite ecumenist. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. God has done one special work with one special people. All religions are not of the same value. Jesus is quite willing to name it. He says, the hour is coming, in fact it is here, right now, when true worshippers, real worshippers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. These words have profound, profound significance for what we are doing here this day. Do you know the New Testament hardly tells us anything about what we should do when we worship? There are hardly any instructive texts at all. This is one of them. In fact, it's the most critical one. And like I, I have to look back through church history and we have to see that the church has done some pretty interesting and curious things in worship over the years. Still today, curiosities abound that you cannot draw a direct line back to this text from these experiences, these expressions that we have today. But this is absolutely critical. Jesus says, this is what the Father seeks. This is the hour of a new paradigm of worship. Now, often when we, worship, we read verse 24, and I've read a lot about worship, I used to teach a subject called worship, I was very disappointed with the way this verse was expounded by people who say a lot about worship in books and conferences, etc. I don't think they've got it right. In fact, the text we read a moment ago has an extra word in that is wrong and it changes the meaning. Let's look very carefully, if you wouldn't mind, pausing for a moment. Verse 24, we read that God is spirit and those who must worship him, who worship him, must worship in spirit and truth. Normally, when people hear those words, spirit and truth, and they're thrown around a lot, they think that God is asking us to do two things, to worship in spirit and to worship in truth. And so we tend to think this new paradigm worship which we engage in today, it should have a bit of truth stuff. Oh, that must be the sermon, or at least a Bible reading. And we all know that. We don't have to think about that. Let's think about the spirit bit. What is that saying? There seem to be three options in all the literature I've ever seen on worship. One option is to say we must worship in the spirit. 
but the word the is not in the text. So it's speaking about, these writers assume, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that we require the third person of the Trinity to worship. Now that may be true, but each of these three interpretations lead us into totally different directions in worship. They can't all be right. They're saying totally different things. The first one is to say the Holy Spirit is being referred to here. So therefore, what could that mean? Oh, worship is meant to be supernatural. And miracles are meant to happen in worship. And we're failing somehow if we don't do that. Now, when we hear these interpretations, it's so good that God has given us a Bible written with a lot of narrative. We have the interpretive checklist that we can check off whenever we hear an assumption like that first one is that if Jesus is commanding her to do it she must have been capable of doing it and secondly this must have made sense to her now I think if Jesus said you've got to worship in the third person of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit it wouldn't have made a cracker of sense to her she's a Samaritan they only had the first five books of the Old Testament she was struggling in understanding the second person of the Trinity, let alone understanding that there was a third. I don't think that this is what would have made any sense to her. She might have had, and she certainly didn't have the capacity to do miracles. So it's a bit of a dud command. Tick that one off. I don't think that is what Jesus is saying. Other people would say, well, it's speaking about the fact that Jesus wants us to worship spiritedly and it's about our spirits he wants to worship passionately so like a director's chair in heaven and God is looking over and he said I'm sick of all this liturgy give me some passion and he's asking for a sort of a spontaneity uh, like a, a North Korean military parade you don't want to be the last one the first one to stop clapping in those places and that, that's a tyranny of emotion Jesus is not saying you know the new thing is that you need to put a bit more zip into it, love. She could do that. She was good at feigning emotion. Jesus isn't saying, work it up, be enthusiastic. The third assumption that some writers make is that they say, oh, Jesus doesn't like a lot of structure in worship. It's spooky spiritual. It's got to have no form. It's just got to be amorphous and go where the Spirit leads. But you see, that's not a biblical notion. God that we worship is the Creator. He's not against materiality. He's not against thinking about worship or planning. He gave us brains. They're sanctified brains. He doesn't say, come to Christ and drop kick your brain. I wasn't going to use any football metaphors today. But... But he doesn't say, get, get rid of the brain and don't think and plan and have structure. That's, that's not the error that he's fighting here, as if this woman was engaged in, in such overthought on worship. doesn't make sense. What we've got to do is to go back and see that he is speaking about a theology that she knew about. And it's a theology from the earliest parts of, of Scripture. And when Jesus says... God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. He's saying, and you see the connection, there is something about God, God is spirit, and his nature, 
that determines how he likes to be worshipped. And I don't think Jesus is saying there are two things you should do. He's saying there's one thing about God that you should know and one thing you should do in response. And that's the newie. That's the revolution that he's introducing here. God is spirit is a way that the ancient divines used to say that God is totally other than us. There is no being in the universe who's more different than you and I, than we and God. He is the creator. He is what the old divines used to say, uncreate, totally other than us. Let's read that again. So Jesus says, verse 24, God is spirit, he is totally other And those who worship him must, and I think he means are constrained to, are bound to, therefore, worship him in spirit and truth. And what he's meaning, you see, Jesus is speaking Aramaic. He's speaking the the peasant language here. And Jesus is literally saying, you are bound to worship a God who is totally unknowable, You can only worship that God when he utters his truth, when he manifests himself. If you could say when he comes out and becomes real, when the most real that you cannot know allows himself to be real in our presence. And she hears that and she goes, oh, I know what you're talking about. Moses spoke about a Messiah who would come. And he would reveal to us all things. He would reveal God to us. Jesus looks at her, catches her eye. And she's right on the wavelength. She knows what he's saying. You can only worship the God who is holy and other when he comes out and dictates that that moment is a moment of revolution. Revelation. And she looks at him and he leans forward and he says to her, expecting the Messiah, guess who you're talking to? The one who is speaking to you is the I am. Now she is nobody's fool and she knows men. And she can give as good as she can take. And she sees him. And she's in the wrong place. At the right time. And she gets up and she vamooshes out of there. Discomforted by the presence of holiness. I think this is saying to us, what an incredible privilege we have to be new paradigm worshippers post this age, post Christ, post Calvary, post resurrection, post ascension, post Pentecost. Jesus is saying, if you are to worship me, it begins with three attitudes that you bring to worship. It's not so much about the technology. It's not so much about the format. It's about attitudes. There are three attitudes summed up in three single words here. The first one has to be the word dependency. 
In other words, we worship a God and we are totally dependent upon whether he will speak, whether he will roll up, whether he will minister in this place each Sunday. This is something we cannot conjure up ourselves. You cannot lead people into worship. Full stop. You can lead them to sing songs, you can lead them to hear information, you can lead them to sit down and stand up, but you cannot dictate to this one that he will roll up and speak. We are totally dependent. Our worship will be reformed, will be renewed to the extent that we come into this place open-handed and say there is absolutely no reason why I should encounter God this day. No reason at all because we're totally dependent on him. It, it means that he is free to be absent. We are not the agents of redemption. He is. Our job is not to therefore try and move emotions in this place. Human emotions are very, very manipulable. And if you have the right tone and the right music and even a smoke machine, you can move emotions. But there is a big difference between humans getting emotional over suggestive enterprise from worship leaders and the very real presence of God. And if we confuse those two, we are committing a heinous idolatry. We are, we are defrauding God's people. This is not just a message for worship leaders. It's for all of us. We are the choir. We are those who sing to God. Let us not think that our job is to cultivate emotions. I used to be a fan of uh, reading ancient histories of great uh, holy people and one that affected me as a young man was the, the autobiography of Charles Finney. Charles Grandison Finney was probably the greatest evangelist in the English-speaking world in terms of affecting culture. I don't like all his theology, but he certainly was used by God in the middle of the 1800s his book is just a, a litany of revival after revival after revival as people got on their knees and they prayed that God might condescend to come again. And town after town, Finney would go to preach and he'd only preach in a town if people were praying that town to repentance. And the story is told one night in New York, I think it was, when he um, started preaching and a whole lot of people came along and he'd become a celebrity by then. And they came along to hear the preacher, but not to hear the one he is preaching about. In the middle of his sermon, people started weeping, people started falling on the floor, people started crying out anguish. And you know what Finney prayed? He prayed, Oh Lord, forgive me for what have I done? Because Finney knew the difference between true revival and the work of the Holy Spirit and merely the movement of emotions. And so he set them a task. He said, if you really want to know God, if you want to get right with God, then tonight you come at midnight down to the wharves. It was the most dangerous place in New York. The cutthroats were down there. He set his watch and he went to bed. He woke up at five minutes to midnight and he walked down to the wharf to find hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers ready to receive the reality of the present Christ. 
Oh, that we would have that yearning to have much more than just our own spiritual subjective experiences to this day, but that we would yearn for the reality. And that comes when we enter with an attitude of dependency. If he doesn't want to speak, the reality doesn't happen. Second thing is authenticity. Jesus is saying something here that if we're going to worship what we do must correspond to the God as he has revealed himself. God is spirit and that dictates what we do. The nature of God. And that means that what we say in a place such as this, that is a duty that is heavy upon the worship leader and the preacher and ourselves. It must correspond to what God has revealed, not what we would prefer. And it doesn't matter what songs people prefer to sing or what sentiments they prefer to hold. What matters is, did God reveal that about himself? Because if we're willing to worship this God, we must be willing to sit in the learning posture and receive him as he has revealed himself. It doesn't matter what people prefer in tastes and preferences. Our leaders must be the most spiritually mature They must be theologically literate. You cannot lead Christians to a place where you have yourself not been. That's more than technology. It's authenticity. And lastly, the third attitude which Christ says is we come with a sense of expectancy. We come post the cleansing of the blood of Christ, post the filling of Pentecost. We come in a new era where Jesus says, it's people with these attitudes that I love and I want to draw near and enjoy their company. I can't understand that. But the the God of heaven, the God of the cosmos, the God of the ages wants to receive my worship our worship and he enjoys it did you have an expectancy this morning that when you came here you wouldn't just meet dad and dave and fred and joan and barney and but you'd meet jesus we have to cultivate that sense that this is much more than a sociological gathering This is a place where Jesus would love to come. And how do we measure the success of worship? I think we have it here. This woman clears out. And it says in verse 28, a little detail. When John leaves this little pictorial details, they're very important. In verse 28, then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. The woman left her water jar. Did you notice that? Very important. What was water to that woman? Water in a dry place is life itself. She has been subsisting, but now she is existing. She has met the one who is the spring of life. She runs back to town. This woman who's a social pariah, hubby bait, 
this despised woman transcends her shame and she says, and she asks them a question, I have met a man who told me everything about me and I think he could be the Messiah. Couldn't he be the Messiah? And they see that she has been so transformed to step out of the shadows into the light. They see a transformed life. They see a prototypical missionary. And we will measure in this church whether God has been here, whether he has been at work by the number of people who are, as it were, leaving the water jar behind and stepping out to offer their lives to speak the gospel, whatever it costs. The things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We will not have another great missionary movement like we had in the 50s and 60s in Australia by pressure recruiting. It will come as people look in the eye of Jesus again. It's a revival of worship that precedes a revival of effective mission. In that order. Oh, how important worship is for the movement of God through this godless nation my parents years ago um, had a change of life in more ways than one they had a loving marriage but there were some points of bitterness and rancor and unforgiveness that had gone on for decades and then my father found himself uh, as a professor of physics at Monash University and Due to government wisdom and the merging of departments, you remember the phrase, the razor gang? And they came through the universities and lots of people, departments were blended together and people were sacked. And He decided to take the golden handshake, remember that phrase? All came out of the same era. And he, he took that golden handshake and, and he left and he'd retired very early. And uh, he still had a lot of energy and he knew his Bible, he was a had been a fine preacher in his evangelistic days. And, and uh, a second cousin that he had met through the death of his own mother, that second cousin led her to the, to the Lord, and I'll tell you about that some other time, 48 hours before she left this world. Through meeting that man, um, he was invited to take on the, uh, the preacher's duties at a little group of Presbyterian churches out the other side of Ballarat. And uh, we had nothing better to do and it was a great opportunity to get back in the word and get back in the harness. And uh, these four churches, they'd rotate the preacher sort of one, one week of the month and, and that sort of thing. And he had an invitation from one particular church and the instructions to get there were pretty vague. Uh, and they sort of basically were not, you know, it was before the days of electronic maps and all that sort of thing. And it was sort of you end up out the back of town and you take the first right and you travel two blocks down and and you'll find a gate on the right and you take that gate and just follow the track and the church is in the paddock. Well, my parents had bought a new VW and they were trying to test it out and they went down and they followed these instructions that they'd taken down over the phone. And it was one of these afternoon church meetings. It was a cold winter's day. It was a lot of fog around, typical Ballarat summer. And uh, there they were, they're travelling around and, and they couldn't find this gate in the fence. And they said, before we head off home, we're, we're now about half an hour late. 
let's do it one more time. They went around this great farming block, you know, a couple of furlongs each way. All they could find was this squashed fence. And they thought, maybe that's the gate. And they drove across this cross, cross squashed down fence into this paddock. The grass is about that high and they're following the ruts of this path. And suddenly the ground dropped away and there in the mist below was this old bluestone Presbyterian church. It was like a scene out of Brigadoon. You sort of thought Gene Kelly had come dancing out of the fields any minute. And Anyway, they, they thought, well, that's it. And they drove up and they could hear music coming out of this, this ancient kirk down in the vale. And they met a man at the door and they went up and he gave them a, a hymn book and a shake, and a rather elderly man. And they walked in and the lights were terrible. It was dim and musty and uh, it was a curious... Uh, museum piece of pre-technology worship. Well, they had some technology. They had a LP record player up the front and two big speakers. And luckily, they'd come during a hymn, and as they stood there, they, they sh sh shuffled up, and they were invited to the front pew, and they shuffled up beside this woman who looked like she'd just sort of been pulled out of a potato patch, and she's covered in uh, this old wardrobe piece uh, covered in dirt. Dirt lining the, the pores of her, the lines in her face. And there was a man up the front and uh, uh, George Beverly Shea sang at their church every Sunday morning and they'd put on an LP and, and this, this gent would lift up the arm, the lever arm of, an, of this old LP record and, and drop it and, and they'd get the last verse of the previous hymn and then a gap and... And then George would lead them in and they'd start singing. <laughs> and my mum nudged my dad in the ribs and said, oh my goodness, this is a hoot. <laughs> and then they're, they're sort of smiling and singing and, uh, you know, thought, you know, I've driven all this way, gone through all this agony for eight people who look like they've come out of the graveyard just outside. And, uh, uh, and there they are. And then a funny thing happened. And my mother turned and looked at the musty lady beside her. And she lifted her chin to sing. And a little tear came out of the duct of her eye and ran down the cheek, dissolving the dirt as it went. And then my parents say, we can't tell you what happened next. But that place was filled with a holy love. And it transformed them. And they were never the same. And Jesus is saying, do you understand, that's the contract that I wrote with my blood. It's not us who make worship happen. But we make spaces in our corporate heart for the Jesus of the well to come and fill us with his holy love. That's the new paradigm. Oh, that we might offer that contract to the world. That we might be able to say, you know, Kilsyth South Baptist, oh, they've got good musicians. They've got comfortable seats. Oh, but you can meet the Christ of the world there. That's the new paradigm. Let's pray.
We pause, O Lord, in the quietness of this moment and to give you thanks that you're the sort of God who would choose to go into a wasteland and find a nameless woman to reveal the very presence of the infinite God to her personally. And so, O Lord God, we see that this Christ is the one we worship, the God of the unsophisticated, the God of the little people, the God of the God-forsaken. We thank you that you are like this and that you enjoy the company of such people. In our hearts this morning, we just invite you to fill us afresh, literally, to be with us in a fresh and new way so that we might speak the words of the gospel with vitality and conviction as of one who have met this Jesus. We ask this for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name. Take the words we sing now as sincere confessions of our love for you, the one who seeks and saves. Amen.